Like to thank you. Good morning, everybody. If you haven't met me, my name's Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. A very warm welcome to you um, at Real Life Church. Um, we're going to be starting our uh, sermon series, Christmas at the Movies, this morning. There are some radio and TV times floating around on some of the seats out there. If at any point you want to have a flick through, circle some of your favourite movies that you want to catch up over Christmas, feel free to do that. It's one of those great traditions, checking out, planning your Christmas viewing around everything else. I've already clocked the Doctor Who Christmas special. It's coming, yes. Matt Smith is leaving. And we have a new Doctor. If you don't know anything about that, have a check, check that out. Um, if you've got a Bible, can you go to Luke chapter 2, please? Luke chapter 2. December is upon us. Um, Christmas has officially begun, although it officially began probably three months ago. It is now December. You can be, feel free to get excited. Advent calendars open the first day. Who opened the first door of that Advent calendar this morning? A few of you need a few more Advent calendars. Who has watched a Christmas movie already? Oh, yeah. Which one? The, oh. So many to choose from. <laughs> Yeah. Bill, which one about you? Oh. All right, okay, let's see if we can build it back up from there. Okay. Um, what is it? Anyone got a favourite Christmas movie? Gremlins. Gremlins, yeah? Go on. The Polar Express, okay. Any more? Die Hard, that's my favourite Christmas movie. Die Hard. Let me tell you the top five grossing Christmas movies. They might actually... Um, Surprise you. The number one, or I start at the bottom, number five, we'll count backwards. Number five, the top uh, of the five grossing, highest grossing Christmas movies, number five is Elf. Anyone seen Elf? Yeah. Number four is the original Santa Claus, the Santa Claus with Tim Allen in. You seen that one? Number three has been mentioned, The Polar Express. Number two is A Christmas Carol, 2009 version with Jim Carrey, the motion capture one that's a bit, a bit weird. But that one is number two. And number one, highest grossing Christmas movie ever is The Grinch, yeah. who stole Christmas. That's number one. Yeah, I don't like that one either, but you know, that's number one. A lot of people went to, say, to see that, to buy that, so that's the number one highest grossing Christmas movie. If you look at your leaflet, what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks with Christmas at the movie is we're going to be taking the whole theme of movies, looking at that, um, using that lens to look at the Christmas story we get from the Bible. We're going to have the director, which is what I'm going to look at today. We've got the leading man next week, who Joe's going to be looking at. Then we have on the 15th, we have our kind of our guest event, invite your friends, invite your family. Mel's going to do um, a nice fr- um, family kind of friendly message, looking at the Muppet Christmas Carol, how God deals with your past, your present and your future. And the last one there, I'll be rounding out on the 22nd, uh, is the set and the supporting cast. So that's kind of our theme as we're going forward. And so what the first one we're looking at today is the director of the movie, using that kind of image to look, at, look through the lens at the Christmas story. Now, coming to famous directors, it's my power, oh, excellent, can you name any famous directors that you know of? Go on, give me some. Steven Spielberg. He's pretty famous. Any more? Tom Hanks. What was it, Peter? Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock. Very good. Any more? Mel Gibson. Peter Jackson. James Cameron. There's a f- name a few. You may have heard of them. I bet, even if you haven't heard of them, I bet you've heard of the films they've made. But here's an interesting thing about directors. You may have watched their movies... You may have even heard their names, but would you recognise them if you met them? Because the director's different to the stars of the movie. The stars of the movie, who the guys you get on the, the girls who get on the posters, their names are very big, and we watch them 
but the directors are kind of behind the scenes doing the stuff. You don't actually get to see them because you just get to see the results of their work. So, on the, um, the board behind me, in just a moment, there's going to come a picture of a famous director, and we're going to work it out. And I'll see if you actually recognise them from their picture, and we'll see how we do. I've got ten. Let's see if you get me. So, can we have the first one, please? Steven Spielberg. His famous film, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Jaws, E.T., Jurassic Park. The list goes on with Spielberg. He seems to keep making them. Can we have the next one? Peter Jackson, he did the Lord of the Rings trilogy, now The Hobbit, um, King Kong, Lovely Bones, a whole bunch of films he did. All right then, go and get a little bit harder. Who's the next guy? Oh, ho, ho, said the geek in the front row. <laughs> Say it loudly, Dave, go on, be proud. It's Christopher Nolan. He did the recent Batman trilogy. He did Inception, uh, Memento. So, lots of films we'd have heard of and seen. That's Christopher Nolan. The next one, this is a gimme, go on. George Lucas. Star Wars, basically. <laughs> the, the, the insidious empire that that is. Okay, how about this one? Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock. Psycho, The Birds, Dial M for Murder, North by Northwest. Go on, next one. Would it help if I told you he was the man responsible for the Godfather trilogy? An apocalypse now. Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, that's right. Francis Ford Coppola. Some extremely famous films. That is the man responsible. Who's the next one? Quentin Tarantino. That's Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill um, stories. Next one? James Cameron. That's right. Aliens, Abyss, Avatar, Terminator 2. Loads of huge films that we may have seen. Two left. How about this one? Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. Well done. What did, who, what did Ridley Scott do? Alien, Blade Runner, Thelma and Louise, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, Robin Hood and Prometheus. To name a few. We would have all heard of those films if we hadn't seen them. And the last one... Who's this guy? <laughs> nope. He's recently, or fairly recently, departed. That is Stanley Kubrick. Spartacus. I am Spartacus. 2001, Space Oddity, Clockwork Orange, Doctor Strangelove, Full Metal Jacket, The Shining. Stanley Kubrick there. Interesting. Some of them you recognise very quickly, some of you didn't, but their works are huge. Made millions and millions of dollars and pounds, uh, influenced movie business uh, for decades in the past. And the interesting thing about the director is, although you don't see them behind the camera, you know their work often when you see it. There's often kind of their fingerprints are over the work they do. If you ever watched um, a film, films by Tim Burton, another director, I instantly know his films when I see trailers because they're usually creepy and dark. You know, he did Beetlejuice and he did uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas and Sleepy Hollow and Sweeney Todd and, they're just, and the new Alice in Wonderland one. And they're just really freaky and I don't watch them. But I know his work. Just, I can just tell it when you see it. And they usually star Helena Bonham Carter and Johnny Depp uh, as well. It's a giveaway. If you like films by Michael Bay, yes! They're usually full of really big explosions and really crazy car chases. The Transformers trilogy, Armageddon, Bad Boys, The Rock... All my favourite films. <laughs> Love Michael Bay stuff. The bigger the explosions, the better. But his fingerprints are all over. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. If you watch his films, these are interesting because they usually have a female blonde lead in there. They usually have a twist of some sort. And also with Hitchcock, he often had a cameo. 
So if you watch his films, you have to play spot the director because he often appears in just some little scene in there. Um, and as we approach the Bible, I want us just to look today as God almost as a director of the story that's happening there. Now, you won't find the, the, you know, the word director in the Bible. It, it's a modern sort of terminology for our film industry. But what you will find as you read in the Bible is you will find words like sovereign, sovereign king, lord over all, which is in a similar role. God is the one who, who takes that kind of view of he is orchestrating everything. There will be human players on the stage doing things, but behind that there is a sovereign lord who is directing the affairs that we can see. And if we look at the Bible as a movie like that, there is one who is directing the affairs of everything that's happened, the one who is behind the scenes so often, but so much at work. And I ask you to find Luke chapter 2. Let's just read our our verses this morning, and then we'll use this as a kind of a a jumping-off point in what we want to do today. These should be familiar verses to you if you've ever been around church at the Christmas story. We've got the first few verses of Luke chapter 2. It says... In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for him at the inn. All right, what I want to look at today is three different kings that are involved in this story. The first one, the king of the world. The king of the world. It says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. His story also remembers him as a man named Octavian. Um, He was the first emperor of Rome. When Rome transitioned from the Republic to the Empire, he was the guy in charge who led it through that transition and became the first emperor. So he was known as Octavian, then he became Emperor uh, Caesar Augustus. He was the adoptive heir of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was actually his granduncle, I think, but he, he was his, his adopted heir. He founded the Roman Empire and he ruled the most powerful city on earth from 27 BC to 14 AD. He died about the age 75. Generally, he's considered a benevolent ruler. He expanded the empire. He created police and fire services in Rome. He built many temples and also roads and aqueducts, lots of building projects uh, in his kind of ruling in his life. It said on, on his deathbed, apparently he boasted, I found, I found a Rome of bricks, I leave you a Rome of marble. Kind of boasting about all the works that had been done. He was also a great military leader. He led the empire through a civil war, um, which he won and actually left at the end of his reign an empire that was financially stable. He was the guy in charge. He was the one who controlled everything. He was the one who called the shots. He was the ruler and the reigner of all. And he had power. He had power to um, call a census, um, like that, uh, call a census if he wanted to. He was Caesar Augustus. And actually, that was just a title. What it actually meant was majestic and highly revered. Does that sound like someone else we might know? majestic and highly revered. That's who Caesar was. And he decided to call a census and everyone had to return to their place of birth. And he had people working for him. He had this guy called Quirinius. It says there, if you imagine Caesar like a prime minister, 
Quirinius would have been one of his cabinet members, if you will. He, he, kind of, he had power, but he worked under Caesar. And he was the administrator. He's actually mentioned by the historian Tacitus, this guy Quirinius, and he was governor of Syria. So it's all rooted in history. And there was a census being called by um, the emperor, and um, ta- uh, Quirinius had to kind of administer it in his area. And the census would have been probably for two purposes. It would have been for wealth and power. Wealth, it would have been for, if everyone goes back and registered, you know how many people are in a certain area or how many people are alive, so you know how much to tax them. You know how much your taxes are. You know, so basically, go back, register, so I can tax you more effectively. That's effectively what he's saying. I'm in charge, you need to go and do this, so therefore, I can tax you more effectively, I know how much money I can get in for I guess, all these building projects and stuff he's doing. The second one, power. If he knows who he's registering, he can work out how many able-bodied men he has in his empire, so if he ever needs to call them up for battle, he knows how big his armies can be. So there's a power in everything. If ever kind of I need my armies to go and conquer somewhere, defend us, I now know how many guys I've got around who can kind of wield a sword and fight. And so there were, these were the motives behind what uh, he was doing. But can you imagine the upheaval that it caused? Everyone returned to your hometown. Everyone had to move around. And, and he caused a lot of upheaval for everyone, but also he could take more money effectively off them. I'm going to cause a lot of hardship and difficulty in your life so I can take more money from you. you know, who would put their hands up for that one? Yeah, I would love that one. But he's the emperor. He's in charge. He's the king. He can do that. That is incredible power. And from a worldly perspective, Augustus is exercising control and direction of the world for his own purposes. That's what he's doing. He says, I want to call a census. I want to have money. I want to have power. I want to check it all out. And he can do that. He's the emperor. He's in charge. No one gets to question him. Everyone has to obey. I imagine if anyone did try and question him, did resist, there would have been consequences. Everyone's heard of the Roman soldiers, the Roman legion. They would have been ones who would have enforced what he was doing. So if you tried to dissent, you would have probably been at the wrong end of a sword. And so you had to do what he'd said. And we find the story Mary and Joseph. They were Jews in a nation under Roman occupation and they were forced to obey this foreign power over them. A kind of a command came from outside somewhere else and they had to do it. In essence, the director, the director of the story had said, action, and they had to dutifully play their part. They had to go, they had to do it. They were on the receiving end of orders outside themselves and all they had could do was obey. They had to just get involved and return to the house of a uh, place of their birth. And I don't know about you, but have you ever been in a situation like that where circumstances outside of your control have kind of come upon you and forced you into a course of action that you might not have wanted, you might not have liked, you might not have wanted to do. In fact, you actually would be resistant to them given a choice. They push you in ways you don't expect. You might have faced the possibility of redundancy from work or they would have moved your work. You were working here, we're now going to move the job over there. If you want to keep your job, you've got to move over there and all the inconvenience. Because that could be a short move, that could be a very long move. They could move you across the country. They're restructuring their organisation, they're cost-cutting, saying if you want your job, you've now got to go over there for it. Illness could come upon you and actually change your plans, things you want to do, and suddenly, actually, you're no longer physically able to do that. Or Or a loved one. Part of your family is ill and actually your focus is now shifted on caring for them. What about a relationship ending that you thought was solid and stable and actually because the relationship ended, it had massive knock-on effect in the rest of your life. How did that make you feel? 
Did you feel helpless, hopeless, powerless in that situation? Did it leave you kind of with a sense of who's in charge? What's going on? I'm just kind of being pushed around by others and I don't seem to get a say in it. This happened in my life um, when my dad, um, I was in my late teens and my dad worked all his kind of life on the airlines and he worked at Gatwick Airport. We lived in Sussex. I did all my growing up there and that was home for me. Sussex by the sea, God's country. You know, that's, that's where it was. And um, because of, um, at the time, the um, problems with the kind of, I think there was an con- economic downturn. It's going back a few years. Um, and the airlines got hit by it. And my dad's job was under threat. And they said, well, you can keep your job, but you've got to move it to Stansted Airport. And if you know anything where these airports are, Gatwick is south of London, Stansted is north of London. Um, and there's a big big city in between them. And if you're going to go to one to the other, you have to travel through the world's largest car park, the M25. You know, and it's just, and for dad, it was like, that's what you've got to do. And so mum and him had kind of what they do about this. And dad uh, used to commute up on a Monday, work there all week, and then come back Friday. So I kind of saw my dad at the weekends in my late teens for a period of time. And then I went off to university. And during that sort of time, uh, mum and dad decided actually this was kind of, they didn't want to carry on living like this. They were going to move. Um, and so uh, they moved from uh, where we were in Sussex up to um, a little village in Hertfordshire. Um, and the weird thing for me was that was kind of leaving home. And I was away at university, so I literally went away to university one term where I was studying uh, to be a teacher. And I came home, and it wasn't home anymore. I literally came back to my house, and mum and dad had moved. So instead of getting on the train and going back where we got in Paddington and then going down south, I suddenly had to go north. And they took me to a house that they'd bought. And I thought, this isn't my home. And they showed me a bedroom. This isn't my bedroom, even though I had all my gear in it. It was this weird feeling of actually being kind of something outside my control had pushed me in a direction that I didn't particularly want to go. And that's kind of, if you're in a situation that it can leave you kind of feeling, who's in charge? What's going on? Let's look at the second king. This one is a descendant of a king. Now, the other characters in the story, we've had um, Caesar and we've had Quirinius. We've got Joseph and Mary. Joseph is a manual labourer. Mary is his pregnant teenage bride. Okay, these guys are the total opposites of Caesar and Quirinius. Caesar is powerful, hugely powerful, but Mary and Joseph are, are weak by comparison. Caesar would have been incredibly wealthy, Mary and Joseph would have been poor. Caesar was an urban man, lived in a city, not just a city, the greatest city, Rome, while Mary and Joseph were rural and lived in a back country, a little village that no one had probably heard of. They, were, they worked manually with their hands, Mary and Joseph, while Caesar would have been a political machine, working kind of with his mind in the area of politics. Caesar would have been a celebrity. He would have been the celebrity, the richest man, the most powerful man, great military leader, while Mary and Joseph were in total obscurity. But if we read the story, look at verse 4. It gives us an interesting detail about Mary and Joseph. It says, They went um, up to the city of David called Bethlehem because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. Joseph was a descendant of a king. Not just any king either. The greatest king in Israel history, David. This was the David who killed Goliath. That great story. He's the one who put, destroyed Israel's enemies. 
He's the one who they wrote songs about David. The pop songs of the day were about David killing the enemies, killing his tens of thousands. He was a great military leader. He also wrote psalms. He wrote what we have in our Bible today. He wasn't just a warrior, he was a poet as well. He was a man after God's own heart, he was described. This is a guy who the guys wanted to be like and the girls wanted their man to be like as well because he was kind of, he was hard and strong but he was tender as well. And this was an awesome guy and Joseph was descended from him. And Joseph had to, because of the, the, um, the uh, census, he had to return to this house, place of his birth. This is Bethlehem, the, um, the place of David, which if we go back in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 16 and 17, that's the first time you meet David in Bethlehem. He's out tending the sheep uh, on behalf of his father. And that's where they have to travel back to. Now, Nazareth to Bethlehem, commentaries tell me, is about 90 miles. And it would probably take them three days to travel there, kind of on foot, on donkey. And so you've got them travelling from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 90 days, on foot, on a donkey, and one of them is really, really pregnant. Can you imagine the pain and suffering of that? Have you ever seen a really pregnant lady? Trying to get out of a chair is hard work. Let alone putting them on an animal and dragging them 90 miles because someone somewhere said, you've got to go to the place of your birth to be registered. But on the surface, they are obeying the orders of the director of the story, Caesar. He's directing, he's saying, I want a census, you've got to go. They've got to obey. He's calling the shots. He's the one who's making the decisions. Or is he? Because behind the scenes, there is another director at work, if you will, who is working out his plans. Because if you know your Old Testament and you go and look about what had happened, what had been written down in the past hundreds of years before, you'd find some prophecies and words that speak into this situation that we find in Luke's Gospel. We find another director is working out his plans. It says in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16, it says, and he's talking, God's talking to David, he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what God said to David was, you're going to sit on a throne, but that throne will be established forever. It's never going to end. Your kingdom's not going to end. It's going to last forever. I'm going to put someone on that throne. If you've got your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Famous verses. Um, They're always read at Christmas. Chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Here's the key bit. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and evermore. So someone's coming, Isaiah prophesied, who will be God He will be called Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, but there will be a connection with the throne of David because God promised to establish that throne forever. If we go back, just skip back one page, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, verse 14. It says, just to flesh out what's been kind of prophesied, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. If we go back in Luke, 
Luke chapter 1, just before what we read, what we had. An angel has turned up to a young girl called Mary and said, you're going to have a son. How's that possible? I can't, I'm a virgin. The power of the Lord will come upon you and you'll conceive and you'll have a son. And so what we have is prophecies from the Old Testament being fulfilled. There, there is a, a child, who will, a virgin, who will have a son of the line of David, because that throne will be established forever. And just to round it out, Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O, o Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So even the birthplace of this expected one has been prophesied. Be of a virgin, be of the line of David, and it will be in Bethlehem. Where are Mary and Joseph heading? Bethlehem. Who is Joseph? He is of the line of David, the line of a king. Who is Mary? Pregnant virgin. It's all coming together. So on one hand, you have a world power, wealthy, awesome armies, military might. He can do anything, Caesar. If he wants you dead, you're dead. He can call a census and just uphold, you know, upheaval in everybody's life. But behind it, there are two insignificant people being moved around by worldly powers but they are fulfilling the plans and the purposes of God. In the eyes of God, in the eyes of the great divine director, they are anything but significant. They are utterly vital in the outworking of his story. Mary and Joseph were nobodies in worldly terms, no wealth, no power, no position, no authority. But in God's eyes, they were vital in bringing his son to earth, Jesus from the point of view of the director, they were an integral part of the story. If you think about who Caesar was, and you look at the, the, commentary, the, the words of Luke, how much space did Caesar get? A line. If that, you know what I mean? He got kind of one line. If this was a magazine, you know, he'd be all over the front page. Hello, every piece of his bedroom. You know, and all that kind of thing. And all these cars, and his crib, and all this kind of stuff. No, he got one line in God's story the greatest man on earth at the time. And these two nobodies, insignificant nobodies, were absolutely pivotal in bringing God's plans to fruition, bringing God's glory to earth, seeing God's kingdom come on earth. And I don't know about you, but I don't know how you, how do you view your life in respect to that? None of us here, as far as I'm aware, are massive celebrities. If you are, it's really well hidden. None of us have huge amounts of power or authority. There are, we, we see these guys and girls all over the newspaper and all over the news. But yet, if you're a believer here and you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a Christian, you are part of God's story and he is working it out through you. God's plan is still being worked out now and he delights to use ordinary men and women to do it. He delights in that. Because... Not because we're awesome, because he's awesome. And if he uses ordinary men and women to fulfil his purposes, it means he gets the glory and we do not. And he still uses ordinary men and women to express his love and his grace to those around it. Um, one of my um, favourite things I love doing in, um, in church life is, is we go to life group. We have life groups here kind of midweek. And when we did the... And we just finished our, our series on work. Thank God it's Monday. 
part of it um, in our life groups, we were talking about kind of the effect we've had on people around us. How's God used us in our workplace? And it was absolutely incredible to hear people's stories how God had used them in the most mundane, ordinary, boring situations, so they would appear, but he'd used them to impact and change people's lives. We had Bev, didn't he? A few weeks came out, she shared from the front how God had used her on a Monday morning in school when she was trying to get her class ready. <laughs> and someone had marked in and said, tell me about Jesus. And you're like, what? 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 You know, these things happen. I remember um, others in our growth group, Mike and Sarah, were just telling about their neighbours. They've got a whole bunch of new neighbours that they've been meeting and just getting to know. And God's been using them to impact these people. And all these individuals, I sat there in the life group thinking, I'll probably never meet some of these people. They're, just, they're people who aren't in my sphere, aren't in my world. But yet God is using people I know to impact them and touch them and change their lives. And the reality is, you are God's instrument, if you believe it, in wherever he's placed you. Whichever workplace, whichever home, your neighbours, whichever friendship circle, social group, social club, sports club, whatever you're part of, and God will use you for his glory in that place. What an awesome privilege that is. We've got a whole bunch of Christmas events coming up that John mentioned up front. We've got the, the messy Christmas and the acoustic night and our guest meeting and just general fun you can have over Christmas, inviting friends around, inviting neighbours around, eating lots of food and just enjoying one another. And the question I ask you is, how do you think God's going to use you in those situations? What's your expectation? Is your expectation down here? Oh, there's no way God could use me. I'm not smart enough, I'm not clever enough, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit timid sometimes when it comes to just actually being upfront about who I am and what I believe. Or is your expectation up here with actually my God is awesome, my God is great, he can do anything. He can move people across, across the country to make sure his son is born in the right town by using the most powerful man on earth. God can do anything, which means he can use you, he can use me in whatever situation we've had whatever situation we find ourselves in. So as we move into this sort of season, we've got lots of bunch, uh, um, stuff going on as a church. Don't underestimate what God can do with you. Because he can use you to do amazing things and transform people's lives. All right, last one. The sovereign king overall. The sovereign king overall. We've looked at the king of the world. Caesar, he thinks he's king. He thinks he's in charge. We've got... Mary and Joseph kind of responding to the orders of that king, but actually harboring, you know, as almost a secret in terms that Joseph was a descendant of King David. But behind that, above that, we have the true king, the great king, the one who is ruling all over everything. Caesar called a census because he wanted money and soldiers. God allowed that because he wanted scripture fulfilled. He wanted scripture fulfilled. He had a much bigger purpose. He, had, he wanted prophecies that had been spoken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand, worked out when the time is right. And the reality is, for us, the reality we need to grasp as believers is God had been planning those events we see in the beginning of Luke for hundreds, thousands, an eternity of time. An eternity of time. He had been preparing that event since before the world began, the Bible says. He had been planning it and putting it together. As a director of the movie, he had been putting all those things in place since the world was even created. If we go back to the beginning, it says in Genesis, uh, Ephesians 1, it says, before the foundations of the world, God had a plan. God had a plan. Then we see creation in Genesis. 
Right? Everything was good and he made it and he had a people for himself and they had perfect relationship. Then we see the fall. Well, Adam and Eve, they sinned, they rebelled. They said, we want to be in charge, we don't want you, God. And everything went wrong from that point. Every aspect of life shattered. Relationship with God shattered, relationship with one another shattered, relationship with um, creation shattered. Everything was broken. But if you check in Genesis 3.15, you have the hint. They call it the Proto-Evangelion, the, the first gospel where it talks, about, it talks about the one coming to crush the serpent's head, the serpent being Satan. There's even that, the hint, right at the beginning in Genesis 3, something's going to change. It's not going to stay like this. We fast forward Genesis chapter 12, we have Abraham. God calls him, he says, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you the descendants like the sand and the sea and the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you that. I'm going to promise that. I'm going to, I'm going to do something through your descendants. That is stunning. He has sons, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons after that. They go down into Egypt. They multiply into a nation numbering million, million plus. Huge nation. But they're trapped. They're slaves. God sends one. Moses, let my people go. Plagues. They're finally let out as a people of God. that says they will come and they will worship me. So they come out and they worship God in the desert. God says, I'm going to take you to the promised land. That land I promised Abraham, I'm taking you there. They go into the promised land under Joshua. They take the land and there's the judges that judge the people. But uh, there's a a kind of a cycle going down of their, their relationship with God. They're constantly rebelling. They then say, God, we want a king so we can be like everyone else. God says, I don't want you to have a king. I'm the king but they still want a king. He gives them kings. There's a succession of kings, Saul and David and Solomon. The land then is split, the nation. You have Israel and Judah, two separate nations. You have God's people, they've, they've broken apart. And what you have there is, is two nations that gradually just get further and further and further. There's a succession of kings in each one that just gets further than God. It goes wrong, it goes wrong, it goes wrong. Occasionally you have a good king pop up and things look, oh, on the up, but mostly it's down and down. And then eventually you have the exiles. You have the exile where the northern kingdom is destroyed by Assyria, the southern kingdom is destroyed by Babylon, and the people are taken into exile. They are taken into exile. But then within that, you have the prophets prophesying. In Isaiah, you have, the, you have Isaiah prophesies that actually the purpose of the nation of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. It wasn't just for them. God said, I didn't choose you because you're better than everyone else. I chose you just because I chose you and I loved you. But your, your role is to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. The mountain of the house of the Lord will become the chief among the mountains and the nations will stream to it, it says in Isaiah. You have that. You have Daniel um, chapter 7 where it says, One like the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days and uh, that, that, to that one was given dominion and authority. So one is coming who would, who would rule with ultimate power and authority. We have Isaiah 53 where it talks about one who had come. So you've got Daniel saying he's going to be awesome in power and authority and then Isaiah saying he's going to suffer and die and take on the sins and the pain of the world. And then you have the birth of Jesus, which we just looked at in uh, Luke chapter 2. John has prophesied he's coming. John the Baptist is coming, he's coming. He sees Jesus, his cousin, and he says, this is it, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who's been prophesied. Jesus grows up, he preaches, he teaches, he performs miracles, he casts out demons, raises the dead, he proclaims the kingdom of God, demonstrates it. He then goes to Jerusalem, as planned, he dies on a cross in our place for our sin, suffers the wrath of God that we deserve, and it's all over. Three days later, he rises from death victorious. What was, what was kind of the, the, the defeat is now ultimate victory. 
and he raises and says, I have broken the power and sin of death. It has no longer has any power. He then ascends to heaven. He commissions his disciples, go out into all the world. He sends the Spirit of God on the church. <laughs> the church blows up. Acts 2. Peter preaches, 3,000 saved, and they've never looked back. The church grows and multiplies and multiplies. And then we have uh, the, uh, the letters written by Paul and others explaining what's happened, teaching the church. We find in Galatians 3 where Paul says, you are the heirs of Abraham by faith. That promise given to Abraham, however many thousand years ago, about these descendants, stars and you know, sand, it's you by faith in Christ. You're that. You, are, you inherit that promise. That's where it all comes together. And then we see right at the end, the new heavens and the new earth the new Jerusalem, where people will dwell with God and be with him forever. God is the one who's been directing everything from the beginning. It doesn't matter what Caesar says. It doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter what senses he calls. God has been the one who's directing everything, working it all out for his purposes. And from an earthly point of view, you might think others are in control. Rulers, governments, politicians, military leaders, financial leaders... They're in control. They're running it, calling the shot. You might even think your boss is in control. He's calling the shots. It's like he runs my life. But actually, God is. Caesar wanted a census which moved Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. God wanted Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem so his son could be born there. And so Caesar calls a census. Behind it all is the hand of God. And Jesus' life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection... Is, the, is what the, the centrepiece of human history, is what everything was been leading up to. If you look at your Bible, everything before then is leading up to that. Everything's pointing, something's coming, something's happening, it happens, we have that recorded in the Gospels, then everything after that is looking back, going, look what happened, look what happened. And then you have the culmination of it all coming together, where it says, I will be with you forever. We will, be with, we will see each other face to face, and we will be with eternity forever. It's the key point of the movie. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Every movie has a key point, and it's usually the most exciting and most thrilling kind of bit of the movie. Um, one of my favourite movies, Empire Strikes Back. What's the most exciting pivotal point of that movie? Luke versus Darth. And they fight, and he chops his hand off, and then what does, what does, he, what does Vader say? Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. You killed him. No, Luke! I am your father. <gasps> that's it. That's the, that's the movie. Oh my goodness, Darth Vader's his dad. What does this mean? Everything changes. Oh no. This is the Bible's Luke versus Darth moment. Jesus Christ coming to earth. From that point, everything changes. Everything changes. Jesus coming to earth, living the perfect life, dying the death that should have been ours in our place for our sins. From that point, Everything changes and nothing's the same. Nothing will be the same ever again. We date our calendars around it for crying out loud, don't we? BC, AD. You know, it affects history. And if you're not a believer here, if you're not a Christian here, you might look at the world and think sometimes it's out of control. It's out of control. There is, you know, global economic crisis. They use that phrase. The AIDS pandemic. Global terrorism. You know, resources, global warming. Are we going to be able to feed the people of this earth? Are we going to be have an earth left in X hundred years? Is it all going wrong? But I want to tell you that there is a God who's in control and he is working his purposes out. And they're good. 
and the result is good and the end is good. And if you're not a believer here, I encourage you, put your faith and trust in Christ. Because that's the only place that's sure and certain. Everything else is built on sand and will shake. Just look at what happened with the nation with a, you know, a few banks started to go wrong and the whole world shook over some money. God will never shake. His promises are sure and certain. Believe and trust in him. If you are a Christian here, I want to encourage you to do two things as we finish. Number one, take confidence. Take confidence in what God is doing. You've got the story of his, his word here that can be relied upon and trusted. You've got the promises that come in it. You've got a story where you know the ending's good. You can read it. Some people are like, I don't like to read the end of the story. It spoils it. This one's good to read the end, to know what's happening, to know where we're going. Read the end. The cross and salvation of Jesus that he offers in his death and resurrection is sure and certain. We have a place in eternity secure for us. Nothing can take that away if you put your faith and trust in him. It says in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he pulled lists, a whole bunch of things, didn't he? Height and depth and angels and demons and the past and the present. Nothing can separate us from that. And that gives us huge confidence in the now. In everything we're facing, everything we're doing, we know God is in control and he's directing this movie. And the next thing there is we can take courage. We can take courage because we know that God's in control. We can take courage. We can press forward into the things he's called us to, the things he's said to you. When he said, go and proclaim the gospel to all nations, we can press forward into that knowing that he's the one directing everything. He's the one calling the shots. He's the one ordering our path. You might feel, I've been sent from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I didn't ask for that. But actually God's ordering your path for a greater purpose a greater plan, something he's working out. For me, these have been earthed very much in when we, we started Real Life Church here. These two things, take confidence and take courage. We were in a situation, Melanie and I, where we were happy. We had good jobs and we had a nice home. We were in a great church. And, and God spoke and he said, right, time to leave. I'm paraphrasing, but that's effectively what he said to us. And it, it kind of shook us. It's like, why? We like it here. You know, we just had a baby, our first one, Levi, had just been born. And it was like, time to leave, time to go. And we kind of looked at each other and we were like, we've got to take confidence. We, we believe God. We believe his plans and purposes. We believe they're good for us. We've got a history of him speaking well. And so we moved here to St. Caulfield, kind of a long story, but we ended up here. We felt it's time to start real life church. This is what he called us to do. We had to take courage in stepping out because when you're starting something new, it is frankly terrifying. When we first moved here and the, the removal truck left, there was me, Melanie, and a seven-month-old child. <laughs> and the truck was leaving down the road with my hopes and dreams and job and everything. And I was like, oh, my giddy old. And this is where we are right now. And I don't know where we're going you know, in the future. It's going to be so much more exciting. But whatever life situation you're in, I encourage you to take confidence and courage in Christ. Confidence in God's plan, it is good, he's going to work it out, he's going to work it out for your good. And courage just to step out into whatever he's called you to. Whatever he's called you to, whatever he's put in front of you, take courage because God is good and he's directing the movie. Whenever you're like, what's going on? Look out, you know who's in charge. You know the one who's behind the scenes calling the shots. And it's not even a distant thing because God said, well, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. So who's with you in it? God himself, by his spirit. He's with you. You've got him with you, you've got him interceding for the, for the Father, and you've got a sovereign Lord over everything. That's a great place to be, isn't it? Amen. Let's finish. Stand up, guys. Let's pray, and we're going to worship Jesus together.
Can we have our band come and get ourselves ready? Maybe you just want to close your eyes. I'm just going to pray uh, to finish. Lord God, we want to thank you for this story, uh, this great story you've written in your word that we are a part of. Lord God, we thank you that you came to earth all those years ago to sort out the problem, the problem that we couldn't sort out. Lord God, I thank you that was all part of a plan. It wasn't just kind of some spur-of-the-moment thing. It's something you've been putting together well, since before we were around, since before this earth was around, Lord God, I want to thank you and praise you, Lord. I want to thank you that we can trust you wholly and completely and totally. Lord, I thank you that you are good and you are great, Lord, and you are the one who is ruling and reigning over all. You're holding all things together, working all things out, and you're doing it not just on a global scale, but on an individual scale. In my life, you're doing that. I can take confidence in that. You're doing it in each of our lives, Lord Jesus. I want to say we love you, we praise you. God, I ask you to give us courage to be men and women who step out in what you've called us to. Lord God, not just to, not just to kind of just be, oh, all right, God's in charge, but then ignore that, but actually enjoy that and, and be confident in moving forward in you, Lord God. Give us grace to be great men and women of God who love you, who serve you, who are faithful to your call all the days of our lives. God, people said, amen, amen. Thank you.